0: For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
1: Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, A real treat for you in this episode. Uh, You know his name, you know his voice, you know his style. Uh, For four decades or so, he was an absolute legend uh, on these very airwaves. 6PR, a legend uh, of this radio station. He entertained us, he informed us. Uh, He made us laugh and probably infuriated all of us uh, at many stages as well. He was known for his straight shooting style. It made him a ratings hit, uh, not just here, but uh, in the tough eastern states markets as well. Uh, and throughout his career was uh, given many prestigious awards, which we'll mention throughout the course of the next hour or so. But his media career really happened uh, almost by accident. Uh, out of school, as a teenager, he uh, took on many jobs. A, a drover, a stable hand, a shearer, uh, spent time in the Navy, uh, saw the world working on a Norwegian cargo ship, of all things. Uh, but it was his lifelong love of horses that led him uh, back to horse training. From there, he found his way like I mentioned, by accident just about, into uh, the studio in front of a microphone and in front of a camera, and the rest is history. That is a dot-point CV that you'd scribble on a serviette if you had to write down the CV uh, of my guest. But let's get the real thing now from the one and only... Walter Robert Mormal. Hello, Bob. How are
2: you? Good, Tim. And you're looking spectacularly (laughs) handsome as usual. Um,
1: Your eyesight's fading, obviously. I'm looking a bit (laughs) (laughs) shop-worn. Well, look, give us an update if you wouldn't mind, because, you know, we got so used to seeing you and hearing you uh, behind the microphone, particularly in a radio studio. We we haven't heard so much from you lately. Can you tell us what's been going on in your world?
2: Um, Well, I've spoken about it before, but mm. um, out of the blue, I was, I thought I would an ear infection, and uh, uh, I left it four or five weeks, putting drops into my ear, and uh, it, a small lump appeared under my ear, and on my neck, and uh, I, I thought... I'd given a lot of people advice on radio if they were concerned about strange lumps. Go and see a specialist. So I took my own advice and went to see an ear, nose and throat specialist who told me I had cancer. Um, I'd never been a smoker and I re- rarely drink. Um never drank beer or boozed in pubs or anything like that. i had not on a glass of wine. But anyway, I thought I'd led a, a reasonably healthy life Um, and, um, he told me I would need a surgery, um, that if it was in my lymph nodes, it might be an issue. I look. There are people out there who've had cancer far worse than mine uh, who will have had family members who died from it. So I don't want to make mine sound any worse or dramatic than it was. I underwent a, a surgery called a parotidectomy and full neck dissection. I had the facial nerves removed and 19 lymph nodes, two of which were cancers, were taken out. Um, my face fell down near my shoulder. Um, I had very little control over my tongue and other things and they took out taste buds and um, saliva glands. And then um, I, a, a plastic surgeon, after I, they realised I wasn't immediately going to die, a plastic surgeon looked at me and said, I'll take some muscle out of your leg and put into your face and try and get some shape back in it, and that's where I am. It's left me with a speech impediment um, and all sorts of other issues, but um, I, when I was going through the radiation treatment, I met young people in their 20s and 30s who had everything to look for, who I became, you know, we used to talk to each other, and they are no longer here I am, which sounds, I'd lived most of my life and it seems terribly, terribly cruel that I'll be, you know, a group of people that I knew from going to um, the cancer clinic, um, I'm one of the oldest and I'm still here and they're not. So for anyone who has had uh, this or something like it or a or relation that has had it and they've lost them. They have my deepest sympathy. It just seems unfair that I'm a survivor at my age. It does. But uh, obviously for a reason, Bob, has it made you
1: sit back and and re-evaluate just the the very basic things in life that are important
2: to you? Well, I'm in the last years of my life and... uh, you know, I've got a couple of stents in my heart. You know, I could drop dead in your studio, and please don't. You would be con- <laughs> you would be confronted with the proposition of giving me mouth to mouth. And as I look out through, we'd be the, cu- we'd be queuing up, Bob. Could you ask someone else to come? In? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm in the last years of my life. You reevaluate, I've got deep concerns about the people I've hurt in my life through my behaviour. It's no secret that when I was a kid, when I was a young bloke, I carried on during my first marriage like a married bachelor. Um, I went where I wanted, did what I wanted, saw the parts of the world that I wanted and made, and neglected um, the people at home, and I paid a price for it. I don't think much of me, and i don't and and eventually my um, ex got rid of me, and so she should have far too late. Um, the fact that I hung around is no credit to me. I should have freed her long before then mm. but since then i I met someone else and we've been together for a very long time and and uh, we're married and I'm happy and she's nineteen years younger than me. Um <laughs> and um she told me once that the age gap um has meant nothing to her and I said it will when I get old, um when you're 19 years younger than me. I'm 84 now, um, so she's at 65, and she's got this geriatric <laughs> staggering around the house, grumping
1: about everything. Um, but still that magic, Bob, sense of humour that, uh, that that brightens up the days, I'm I sure.
2: Think, I, think, I think it's more love, you know. Yeah. I genuinely, not immediately, um, it was a slow process, but um, you fall in love and... Uh, you know, suddenly things like age gaps and illness and all of the challenges that are thrown up during a person's life, they're overlooked. Um, if you have an, if you have a great love for someone, um, you don't try and change them, but you know, you l- learn to work within their personality mm. uh, or work around it. And, and that cuts both ways. And, yeah. you know, and plus i got a she's smarter than me my wife Serena and I've got a great deal of respect for her and I think that's all important that I rem, <laughs> I, before I finally found the woman that I have now who is now my wife and I eventually stayed with when I was a philanderer um, which is a nice word for saying a love rat and I, I um I never really felt I, <laughs> I never really felt um, that I couldn't live without someone, yeah I always thought to me I't live with anyone I am an island um I'm bulletproof people will come and go, and I don't care but you know when you really do connect with someone um, it's a gradual process but you wake up one day and you say oh, can't live without this person. Yep, and then you know it's
1: love.
2: Mm. I think. Yep. There
1: you've, you go. <laughs> you've become very, very deep and profound in your later years, Bob. Lots to
2: reflect on. Mm, yeah, <laughs> but I, I always, ref, I reflected on these things from a very young age. I'm, I'm not a religious man. I'm an atheist, and uh, I reflected on these things from a very young age to many of them, there are no answers, but there's an answer to one great question. Um, When I was, some would say at my top, I'd say at my worst, Um, when I looked at myself and thought, um, how do I change my behaviour and be a better person, there's only you can do it. Hmm. Um, you know, it's it's hard to change your personality from one person to another. I've thought about this from the time I was a little kid. Right, I used to think I wish I wasn't like I am. Um, you know, I was a bit
1: belied. Where, where does that uh, that doubt come from then? To be questioning that and having that almost, you know, identity crisis from such a young age, that's
2: I don't know. that's got
1: to come from somewhere. Or is it from your from your mum and dad?
2: Well, you know, I was only talking about this to my sister the other day. My sister Anita, who's a very strong matriarch in our family, who I didn't actually speak to for 30-odd years, and we didn't live far from each other, but I can honestly say that... Um, my immediate family—mum and dad, my brother and my sister—and I—we weren't—we weren't a bonded family. I'm not. There were some wonderful times, but there were some that caused me to leave home when I was 15 and not mm. go back. I—I um, I said to my sister the other day, I never connected with my and mother. I—I I felt feel a bit cheated because I never. My mother obviously loved me, but I didn't feel that to her. And my father um, had problems handling alcohol and he was a violent man. And (laughs) as the oldest, i got the scars to show it. Um, And it's a funny thing. Towards the end of his life, I became very close to him. Right. Closer to him than my mum. So, you know, I used to think about this and, Kids at school would say, oh, God, I love my mother, and I'd see them hanging over their mum. There were things that went on within our family and that I won't talk about that may have caused me to think, well, I don't feel that, mm. and that's why it was easy for me to leave and not keep in touch with my family, including yep. my sister. Yeah,
1: which you did, as you said, at the age of 15. You, you finished school? Yeah. Uh, and set out doing some, some pretty physical jobs and jobs that took you to all parts yeah. of Australia and all around the world. As I mentioned uh, at the start there, some of those jobs you were... A a stable hand, a shearer, a
2: drover. No, I done about a shearer. The most I <laughs> ever did was 50 in a day, and it nearly killed me. It, but it it was sounds like 50 more than I could manage. I well. spent um, a fair bit of time working as a rouse about in Queensland and in Western Australia when yeah. I was a teenager, in the shearing shed. And uh, you know, we all want to learn to shear. Um, The uh, shearers used to, after the bell rang, the sheep would be half shorn and they'd hand over to the rouse about and let you Mm. finish it. That's how I learnt to shear. But I look, you know, I was never good enough to make a living out of it, but if I had to take the wool off one, I could.
1: Yeah. Um, Just before we go to a break, tell me how you ended up uh, working on a Norwegian cargo ship and what you learned i imagine you know as a young bob Mormal, mm. that must have been an eye opening experience being well, on that boat and going to all of these exotic parts of the there's world there's
2: a lot of things i haven't talked about <laughs> one of them was i i came back to free i went oh, well i went to work on a farm at mingan i i went to work in the abattoirs at rob's jetty in the slaughterhouse um i um i picked up skills dead so I could always go back there and get a job because I was from Fremantle, Fremantle people looked after each other. If I turned up, the boss would always say, yeah, I can give you a start. Um, and But it used to shut down at certain times of the year, and it closed down, and I was out of a job. <laughs> oh, God, Tim. And I a mate of mine was joined the Navy. Yeah. And I said, I'll come with you. So I forged my mum and dad's name on a Piece of paper and joined the navy with him, and I was in the navy for eighteen months and got kicked out for behaving very, very badly, <laughs> very badly. Can you tell us what you did?
1: Uh, um, sort of. <laughs> what did you What did you have to do to get booted out of the navy?
2: I'll tell you about that in a minute. <laughs> um, but uh, well, I'll tell you exactly what I did. I had a blue with and. Um, Someone who held a senior position, and um, I just said, "Stick it up your ass," and I um, took off and went to North Queensland, and uh, went droving and working on cattle stations in the territory and the Gulf Country of Queensland. I worked for a drover called Dave Patterson, and uh, best one of the best bosses I ever had. And after a, a year or so, I thought oh, I'd better go back and front of the Navy. So I went back, and the Commodore said to me, Bob, we spent a lot of money. I said, he said, What do you want to do? I said, I want to be a good sailor. I said, well, I was out of water. I'm sorry I did what I did. Um, he said, Oh, well, the bloke's all right. Um, and I said, Now just what? He said, It's not that easy. We spent a lot of money on you, training you, getting you to a point where you could be useful, and then you'd play up and disappear. Um, So he put me in the brig for six weeks and kicked me out of the Navy. Uh, Without a job and any money, I hitchhiked back to WA across the Nullarbor, got a job working in the freezers for tropical traders in Patterson, stacking boxes of apples down near the wharf. It was bloody freezing cold and every lunchtime I'd go and sit down the wharf, drink a cup of tea from the wharfies canteen and I saw a ship and it said, Gertrude Bucky, Hogerson, Norway. So I went and saw the skipper of the ship and uh, asked him for a job and he said, well, we're going to Bunbury to pick up some mineral sands. If you can get a passport and a tax clearance by the time we come back to load some frozen cargo and give you a job. There you go. That's what happened. Beautiful. And the adventures
1: that followed, some of them you probably can't talk about. I can, but talk,
2: I can talk about anything you want me to, Tim, because <laughs> I'm past the point of embarrassment.
1: <laughs> that must be liberating. Hey, Bob, we need to take a break, though, yeah. so I'll let you dwell on that just for a moment, uh, and we'll hear more of these uh, amazing stories uh, right after this. Inspiring stories in this episode uh, with the one and only Bob Mormel back soon. Impressing stories.
0: You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
1: Yeah, well, be... <laughs> yeah. Some of them are still alive. Exactly. It's... Okay. Well, yeah. all right. Let's do it. <clears throat>
0: You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
1: Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Everyone has a story to tell. This one brought to you by Bower and O'Day. My guest has many, many, many stories to tell. Uh, too many stories for us to get through uh, in the short amount of time we yeah. have together.
2: Okay, doesn't I Mean hurry up, Bob. No, no, all good. <laughs> You're
1: right. The Norwegian cargo ship. I mean, for, for you'd already experienced, you know, some of Australia and. Uh, moving out of yeah, Fremantle yes. and exploring this big brown land of ours, but yes. um, jumping on a cargo ship and going off to ports all, all around the world. Yes. What did you What did you learn in your travels?
2: I was nineteen. It was yeah, yeah. I was nineteen years old. I think it was nineteen fifty eight. Fifty-seven, fifty-eight. Um Well, you know, Singapore wasn't the Singapore of today. It was recovering from the ravages of World War II. Um, when I got there, it was a whole different world to me. Mm. Um, I'd never been outside Australia, and suddenly I was in this foreign country. We went from Singapore to Hong Kong, um, and I was astonished at at what I saw in Hong Kong because now it's a glamorous tourist destination. It wasn't back then. Mm. It was entirely different. It was going through a period of change and rebuilding, but um, I saw things and had experiences that not many young people my age went through. We went from there to Communist China. Well, the Bamboo Curtain was up then. Australians were persona non grata, um I managed to sneak ashore and I um I saw this I saw communism full blowing communism under Mao Titung, um everyone wearing boiler suits, no advertising, um all riding bicycles, very, very few cars on the street, um everyone doing as they told, a regimented society. Um, And maybe that's what was needed in China at that time to straighten it out because it had been divided between the Nationalists and the Communists and then the Japanese invasion and the atrocities. Maybe it needed a Mao Zedong or someone like him to bring some order um but I thought, geez, I couldn't cop this. You would I, not have coached well then no I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't be told how what to do every day, where to go all of that and But you know it opened my eyes then we went to six ports in Japan um and then we went across the North Pacific to Canada to vancouver um Victoria, and then the United States Tacoma, Astoria, Seattle. I got off the ship at one stage in uh, – we sailed up the Columbia River to or- uh, to Portland in Oregon, mm. and uh, the Columbia River took ships of our size, and I got off the ship, and I hitchhiked down the west coast of the United States, and my uh, the skipper said, look, you can pick us up in Los Angeles, um, and then we're going to San Francisco and then over to Manila – if you're not there, we'll go without you and the immigration will arrest you. Well, I got there, but, um, I traveled through the United States and, um, I told you I wasn't a religious man. Um, but there's only one time I've ever felt any spirituality. I was hitchhiking along a lonely road in Oregon. I've told this story on air cause I think it's important. Yeah. And, uh, I saw a sign nailed to a tree. There was nothing. If you can imagine a forest, there was no sunlight getting through onto the road because of the trees, these massive trees, and a sign nailed to a tree, and it just had a cross on it and an arrow, and it said, Meeting Today. So I walked in there and there's all these people in a ring holding hands and there were trestles set up in the forest in a clearing with food on it and all these nice people were just holding hands and a man walked over and said, Welcome, brother. What year was this? Is it, 1958. it this... oh, so I said, before, well I, before I, the... was, I was 19. I had me 20th NASA birthday generation. a couple of... At the beginning of probably 1959, I had my 20th birthday on the ship a couple of months later. So anyway, he said, welcome, brother. And that's the only thing that was spoken. And we all stood around holding hands and, and then I watched what other people did. Then everyone embraced and they knelt. And then there's complete silence, but... I'll swear I heard a voice whispering something in the trees. What did it whisper? Well, it doesn't matter what it whispers. <laughs> I'll swear I heard it. Wow. Um, anyway, I walked back to the road and I picked up a a, a card that took me further along and um, I, ju- I took the train um, at a city further down in Northern California and, and it got me to... Um, Los Angeles, and I went out to Santa Anita Racetrack and had a look at the horses and talked to the trainers, and then went and joined my ship. Mm. We went up to San Francisco.
1: Beautiful. You, you've mentioned throughout these these stories, horses keep coming up. It's yeah. been it's been your great love affair, enduring throughout your life, isn't well, it? Well,
2: when I was born in in 1938 in Bunbury, and my dad worked on the wharf. There was no wharf, so I was virtually a toddler or slightly older, we moved to Fremantle, lived in South Fremantle. Yeah. That's where I grew up, and that's this place that had the most influence on my life. And um, South Fremantle was a, a horse training centre. The great horses of WA, yep. Perth Cup winners, two Perth Cup winners were trained in in my street, and a railway stakes winner in the two streets down the mighty England's dust who won the Perth Cup. He was trained there in my street. Yabaru was trained and apt to find who won the railway. They were opposite me. So, when as a child, I used to gravitate over to the racing stables, hang around with the trainers, mm. and learn to ride and look after horses, develop a yep. love of them. And my ambition always was to be a horse trainer.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
2: not knowing that most of them died penniless <laughs> in those days. Um, and many years later, I was training a few horses and having a bit of luck, and a bloke called Barry Thomas, I suppose I might have been in my late 20s, early 30s, and Barry Thomas is a wonderful character and a race caller and a comedian. He was a funny man. Mm. He said to me, hey, hey Marmel, would you like to come on radio with me and talk about the ones you got in next week. I only had five horses in the stable. But at the time, four of them were last start winners. And I said, yeah. And he said, you get $10 and a taxi voucher. That was
1: your your pay packet?
2: Yeah, $10 and a taxi voucher. So the taxi took me out there and brought me back, but I got $10. And I walked into a studio. I'd never seen a studio before, never seen a microphone And Barry Thomas said, now, look, I know you're going to be, I said, I'm not nervous. Mm. Ask me whatever you want to. So we talked and talked and he said, oh, do you want to come back next week? We're trying a thing called talk radio. And a, a very wonderful man called Brian Thurley was the sports boss and, uh, this talk radio thing was there where could actually talk to people mm. so, and everyone was shit scared. And so <laughs> I pressed the yellow button and said, G'day mate, what do you want? <laughs> and,
1: and so it began. And so began a, a relationship with your listeners that, uh, that took you to the very top for, for decades. Thanks to, to Barry come.
2: Thomas and yeah. Brian Thurley. We all
1: need our start somewhere, don't we? A
2: lot of other people, including yeah. John Singleton, who I had a bad blue with John in the studio. I think everyone times. had a blue with John Singleton at some point. I had a blue with him. And uh, <laughs> when, when it was over, he said he, when the program ended, he was pushing a particular right-wing point of view of a new political party he was supporting. And we had an argument and it got very ugly. And uh, when it was over, he said, Jesus, mate, he said, Do you always like that. And I said, yeah, he said do you want to work on Sydney Radio? I'll introduce you to Kerry Packer. And I said, Are you serious? He said, yeah. He said, I can get you on radio on 2SM doing afternoons. Do you want to do it? And I said, yeah, how much? At the time I was getting 100, I was doing an hour a day on 6IX called Maumil at midday. Yeah. And I got $110 a week and eight gallons of petrol. <laughs> and that's what was <laughs> And he said, Oh, probably a grand oh, a week. And I said, How, when do you want me? To? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, the ratings were good. And yeah. he introduced me to Kerry Packer. And Kerry said, I'm going to get you to come on TV every night to introduce all of our programs. And I don't want you to be like those other bastards whose career I make and then they go and work somewhere else. Yep. And he produced this contract. Bruce Gingell, Singleton and myself, we were sitting in the Mandarin restaurant in Sydney. Yep. And I looked at it and I said, I've never had a contract in my life, Kerry. And I said, I'm not signing that. And I grabbed the serviette and I said, here, I promise not to dud you if you don't dud me. (laughs) And I signed it and gave it to him. He would have loved that.
1: Well, what did he say? He said, "That's great, well, Bob, but sign the contract as well."
2: No, what he said was, "Does anyone want a glass of wine?" <laughs> and uh, single still, oh no, say Oh yes, Caro, I'd love a glass of wine. <laughs> and uh, you know what he bought? He bought a four dollars eighty bottle of Blue Nun. Uh, remember <laughs> Blue I Nun?
1: I don't remember it Blue Nun. It was a but... German
2: wine, sweet German wine called Blue Nun. It was undrinkable. Really. Yeah. Wow. It, it I night. thought it
1: was going to go the other way. I thought it was going to dip into the grain No, nah, turn
2: it up. but That's another story. Liam Bartle will tell you the story about the time I knocked the bottle of Grange over. <laughs> I
1: think I've heard that one, actually. Maybe go. that's why you can't be trusted with a fancy wine bottle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's the moral of that story. Hey, we need to take a, a break. After that, I'll get you to reflect on the movie that you wrote as well. That maybe people uh, might have forgotten about uh, the many things you've done in your past, Bob, and then uh, some of your adventures on radio uh, through the wild 80s and 90s uh, here in the West. Plenty to get through with our guest, Bob Mormel, in this episode of Inspiring Stories. Back and more right after this.
2: Have we got a good editor?
1: (laughs) The best.
0: You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. In a lifetime, a motion picture comes to the cinema screen that is unique in every way and becomes a cinema classic for years to come. Blue Fire Lady is one of those rare films. This is the heartwarming story of a girl, a boy, and the horse that'll steal your heart. Australian International Film Corporation is proud to present the romance of the decade. sure turned into a beautiful princess. Well, if you're the prince, you must have started...
1: There you the go, ball. Bob. Does that take you back? I should say that is your creation, Blue Fire Lady.
2: You know, I wrote that actually sitting at the kitchen table after I'd left Melbourne radio to come back. I called in to see my mum and... Um, and just say hello, and, um, she was working at the time, so, um, I needed somewhere quiet during the day, because I'd been asked to write, um, a film that was suitable for general exhibition Mm. in the Disney theme, so I had had some experience with horses, which I've already mentioned, so, um... I just sat down at my mum's kitchen table and wrote it. There you go. Must it was nice, nice to see come together on the screen. Though she was working. Well, I while I was in Melbourne on working on radio, there was a group of people that used to go to lunch every Friday at Marcelino's in South Melbourne called the Rat Pack. There was myself, John Michael Housen, um Darren Hinch, um, sometimes Jim Smiley. Um, and a film director called Ross Dimsey. And Ross said to me, um, you know, a lot of money, government money's wasted on bad movies. He said, um, I wouldn't mind raising some private money and just having a, a, a film that would be made for families rather than trying to sort of send a message. And um, he said, but where do you find a writer that can do it? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. it. Yeah, Yeah. that's all. There you go. And because my mum and dad, every weekend when I was a little kid, um, used to give me five bob, and my sister and I used to go to the movies in the morning, have fish and chips for lunch, then go to the movies in the afternoon. And, And we were barely in primary school, and I don't think my little sister was in primary school. My brother hadn't come along by then. And uh, so I saw every movie during that part of my life. So I pretty well knew what the formulas were that in a movie that – a feel-good movie. Yeah. So it wasn't easy, wasn't hard for me to do. It was no great classic. I, I thought nothing of it. It was a
1: romance time. of the decade, according to that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought nothing of it at the time. It cost less than a million to make. It cost a few hundred thousand dollars, and it was really a vehicle for a matinee idol at the time called Mark Holden. Yeah. And Rex Harrison, the great English actor, his granddaughter played the female lead, Catherine Harrison... Now, it meant nothing to me until years later I was in London doing a bit of wheeling and dealing with some horses and I was in bed and preparing to watch the Super Bowl on TV and I picked up the morning paper and it said on BBC Two this evening a heartwarming story about young love, blue fire lady. And I thought, hang Hang on a minute. minute. And so I watched it. And I'm wait, waiting for my name to come up in the credits on the BBC as the writer of the original story and screenplay, Bob Bormill, there it was. Beautiful. So that...
1: Better than the Super Bowl.
2: That was the first time it ever dawned on me yeah. that it wasn't a great achievement, but it was something worthy. Yeah, Absolutely. Hey, tell me. So, so I bought ten copies of the paper, <laughs> of the morning paper, with, with, with the, ra- with, the with the TV it. guide in it. Brilliant.
1: Why did you come back to to Perth? You you, you mentioned you know you're killing it over East. You, you're getting TV gigs. Kerry Packer's trying to sign you up. You're hanging out with him and Bruce Gingell.
2: Celebrity and you know squares. mixing
1: with Darren Hinch and John Michael Housen and yeah. you know all these other big names in Australian. Television, but yeah. based over east. You had all of that happening. Why did you come back to Perth?
2: I, my great fear, well, one, I was a nomad. I was a wanderer, as you've probably gathered. I didn't grow out of it till I was almost 50. Um, I just, I had this great fear of becoming um, a member of Australian media's Purple Circle you know, lurching from one project to the other, um, your your livelihood at the whim of some media baron, having to be careful what you say and what you do in case you upset a sponsor and cost the company a couple of million dollars. Um So I just left, and I I I don't want to overstate this, but and. I came home and drove a truck for a while. Um, yeah, just a complete break. So yeah, took break a break, it. went back and did ordinary jobs and then took my daughter out of school when, when she was 14 and said, come on, we're going on a cargo ship. That only took 12 passengers to Japan. We travelled through Japan by train. And I said, I want you, Lisa, was my daughter and uh, my youngest daughter, I said, I want you to see more of the world. Um and uh, we went to Siberia and took the Trans-Siberian Railway to across the Soviet Union, stopping in various cities and then taking the train two days later, the next mm. train. And I, I thought it'd be good for her, and, mm. and I wanted to do it. Um, had a, Saw the excesses of the um, totalitarian state again, and... Um, I thought, well, that won't work. (laughs) Eventually, they'll get sick of this. Um, And um, probably the best part of all that was getting on a British Airways flight back to London, and someone saying, "Welcome to British Airways. Will be your flight. Will take whatever, and dinner will be served shortly. And I could get some ice cream." Yeah, (laughs) the little things. Oh, things come to appreciate. there Mm. There were plenty of shops in Moscow, but. And at that period, in time, they had nothing in them. Yeah. Um, And people's lives were very regimented. And then my daughter and I travelled through Britain and Scotland and eventually... You were
1: craving adventure by the sounds of it.
2: I just didn't ever want it to be ordinary. Mm. And I didn't... Mm. I loathed the thought of living in a suburban street in a four-bedroom brick and tile going to work, doing the same job every year, year in, year out, no matter what it was. Yeah. Of course, I came back, got involved with 6PR, um, took a liking to talk radio. But God bless their hearts. All the bosses I've ever worked for, um, Cherie Garner and Declan Kelly and others, when I've got sick of it and left... You know, I'd walk in on a Friday night and say, um, you know, I'm taking six months off. They'd just go, oh, yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And and I was always allowed when a job came up to return. So I had a sort of a fragmented radio career, but mostly centered around 6PR, God bless it. Yeah. And,
1: you know, it was a... (laughs) it was a, probably a great time to be in, on that side of the microphone. Oh, was. Uh, in, in WA, you know, the, the 80s, uh, Laurie Connell, Brian Burke, uh, Robert Holmes of Courts, you know, some of the, the big colourful
2: characters, they were... Bob Hawke, he'd he just walk in the studio and say, G'day, Mormal, who you got on next? He said one day. He walked in, Laurie Oaks and a few others with him, He's was coming in unannounced, So, G'day, Marmal. um, who you got on next? And I said, oh, I do know, we're doing the stars. I said, no, you got me. <laughs> and this is a true story. During, during the commercial break, I'm not sure who was panelling, but during the commercial break, he said, this is a bit dull. And I said, yeah. He said, also, I want to talk about taxation. I said, yeah. Laurie Oakes was outside. I think he's the only journo that twigged. And Bob Hawkes said, I said, well, you need to make a big announcement. And he, I said, all of our calls will be about taxation. He said, yeah. I said, why don't you have a tax summit in Canberra and invite all the stakeholders to a tax summit? He said, that's an effing good idea, said Bob. So he came back on. I said, well, Prime Minister, we've only got five minutes to go. Um, what's next for you? And he said, well, Bob, there's... Here's a headline for you. I want to make an announcement. It's something I've been thinking about for, a, about for a long time. We need a taxation summit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was spread everywhere. Now, sometime later, Laurie Oakes wrote a piece saying he believes the idea of the tax summit sprung from the mind of a talkback caller, in a talkback host in Perth. And I was often asked about it, and Bob said, "Don't tell anyone." Well, yeah. Bob's dead now, and I don't care anymore. So I'm telling you, that's how the tax. That's
1: how it happened. There you go. Just correcting a little moment in history there. Yeah. Um, Brian Burke, of course, as well, yeah. who um, is often described as a as a friend of yours. Can
2: I ask, are you still friends? Yeah, he's a very close friend of mine, yeah. Brian. Um, he. I met Brian in the canteen at Channel Seven. When I was working, 6ix you know, and Channel 7 were in the same building. Mm. They had a canteen. And Brian, I saw Brian sitting in a quarter. His nickname was Fat Albert, and he was on his third pie. Um, and I went over and started talking to him. we eventually started talking about politics. Um, I've always been centre-left, in my belief, probably because of my upbringing. Um, I've stayed away on environmental matters, I'm a bit extreme. Um, but Berkey and I hit it off. He mm. was the um, son of a Labor member of um, Parliament and respected. He was, uh, His father was badly bruised during when the Labor Party split. Um, Brian was a Catholic. He was uh, married uh, to his childhood sweetheart. They married when they were teenagers still. Um and I got on really well with him. And he was a reporter and he used to do these quirky, silly things at the end of every report. But, you know, when we talked, he had these deeper um, political philosophies. And he told me he's run for Parliament. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> anyway, and he got elected and he completely changed. The real Brian Burke came out. And a, a lot of people, it's all covered in his book called um, A A Tumultuous Life. He doesn't pull any punches in the book, but he had a very, very good legislative career, but like a lot of politicians, took his hands off the wheel, um, took the electorate maybe for granted a bit. Um, But if you read, he had the best front bench I can remember in Western Australian politics, Mm. the brightest people, and they got a lot done. They Mm. got a lot of stuff done. But the Brian Burke that I know is a very honest, dedicated man and was was never really interested in money, I know, because whenever we went to lunch, I paid. um, (laughs) He never had a dollar on him. And he was extremely generous with people and with praise and acknowledgement and of the the good deeds of other people. And it was a sad end to his career. I thought he had a, a lot to give. But do you know, Tim? I think the biggest problem in Brian's political career that caused a lot of things that went wrong. He got bored. Mm. He got there too early. He got into Parliament too early, became Premier too early. He achieved all the things that he wanted to do with legislation... And I just think he got bloody bored and started to play around in in with things that eventually brought him undone.
1: Should have taken a leaf out of your book, Bob, and just you know bug it off in a Norwegian cargo ship no, for a while no, or something like that.
2: We need a few <laughs> solid people. Well, he went on to become ambassador to Ireland, to Ireland. And, yeah. and the Vatican.
1: Yeah. Hey, Bob, I'm interested to hear about some of your tales uh, from your side of the microphone as well, because you worked with some of the the standout broadcasters as well. You're in pretty illustrious company throughout your time uh, on the airwaves in Perth. So stacks more to get through right after we take a break. Bob Mormel is our special guest on Inspiring Stories. Back with more in a sec.
0: You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
1: Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is Bob, Bob um... more, oh, more, yeah. more, yeah. more Bob. More Mill. More Mill. Let's have more Mill. Let's yeah. have more Bob, more Mill. More Mill. More Mill. Hey, Bob, you worked with some pretty outstanding people. But look, I think one of the things that people uh, loved about you was you had an ability to talk to your listeners. Um sometimes you argued like hell with them. Yeah. Um Talked you laughed with much. them, but you had an authenticity and a sense of humor uh that I think people just really engaged with, uh, which was probably different to some of your colleagues that you worked with
2: who Mind you, um um Sometimes I engage in, with my audience the wrong way. Well, one um, a man r- uh, wrote to me once in blood. And, in and, blood? Uh, yeah, and said, um, um, I, I used to occasionally get letters from people saying <laughs> I enjoyed that, say hello to my mum, so I opened this one up, and it's in blood. Wow. And he said, I'm writing this in the in my blood as um, as a soldier of Christ. To I tell am. you that Satan awaits you, um, your talk, your continual focus on fornication will uh, have it will see you burning in the fires of hell. I'm trying to remember it. Written in blood. Yeah, he said he's writing in his own blood. I don't know. It might have been red ink, but I, yeah. And to add to the he story, he of forensic analysis but... his own blood. He might have killed a chook. But he said, "I'm writing in blood." And uh, you know, he was. Uh, he, I used to conduct a um, a discussion about um, um, women's health and reproduction with Doctor Vivian Cass, mm-hmm. who was a sexual psychologist, lovely person, real talent. Viv, hello, Viv, and. Um, we played it straight up and down, but we'd been talking about um, the female orgasm, and and I happened to mention the word words penis and clitoris, and it sent this bloke over the edge. That's what prompted the the yeah. letter. Yeah, but um, and and yeah, everyone that gives an opinion on radio g- gets hate mail, and I got my share. Yeah, and how did you wear that? I to Just give a rat's arse, to be yeah, Straight in the bin. Straight in the bin. I mean, a bloke one day said, um, he called me a few names on when I was last on 6PR, and I said, look, I'll tell you what, I knock off at midday, um, I was filling good on mornings, I said, why don't you meet me at the front or in the parking area, and say all that to me face, that I'll be there. So Melanie Benalla said, you're not going to go down there, what if he's a... Riding a motorbike and carrying a shotgun or something. Said, "Well, we'll find out." If you walk, if you talk the talk, you walk. So I went down, and he drove past in the car and gave me the finger sign and said, "I never thought you'd turn up, fatso," which hurt a bit because I was at my thinnest. (laughs) He drove past and gave me middle finger, I never thought you'd turn up, fatso. Uh, That was it. That was was the meeting. Nothing else.
1: Yeah. Um some of the people you work with though, you know, George Grillistic for instance. Brilliant man. Um, um, often John min- Watts, Misunder- another big figure.
2: Very often misunderstood. Oh yeah. George. What what are we misunderstood? Very about intelligent it? man. Um had a he did have a soft spot, um, and he showed it towards me on more than one occasion. Um hard as nails, no doubt about it. Old school, could be very sexist. Um shockingly politically incorrect, but unapologetic for it, but a brilliant broadcaster. And when you heard him on radio, even if it was in somebody's car parked in the street, you had to go and stand there and listen. Um, and he was interested in Western Australian history and stories, and some of the most enjoyable radio I did was talking about um, moments in Western Australian history with George Mm. and he was a dear friend and a good mate and when he knew that he had cancer at the end of his life, he gave his last interview with me and it was one of the bravest performances I've ever seen. In fact, George was smiling. Is that right? And he said, I said, George, um, later when I spoke to him on afterwards. I said, George, that took a bit of doing. He said, no, it didn't. He said, I said a lot of things that i wanted to say. I've rung as many people as I can to apologize if I def- I've offended a bin in life. And I hope the segment I did with you filled in the gaps. Mm.
1: One of your other great loves uh, in life, apart from horses, apart from uh, being on the radio, uh, is footy. You've had a strong association with your beloved Bulldogs.
2: Yeah, South my, my Fremantle football club. South Fremantle. God um, bless them. And at, and at Fremantle as well. And no, I'm not a member of Fremantle. I you, was on the board. of Fremantle on the board. for a while during yeah. a turbulent period. Um, I, but um, I used to. I did a lot of football shows. Mm. And I started going to the footy when I was eight years old and living in Essex Street in Fremantle. I heard a roar one day and I thought, what the bloody hell is that? I was a little kid and I sneaked in and here's all these magnificent looking men in red and white running around kicking a footy and humiliating these men in blue and white. And the men from in red and white who became my heroes were South Fremantle players and that became my footy club and it's remained so ever since and I've been a proud member for as long as I can remember. Yep. But going to all those footy games and not being much good at it, but playing a bit of paddock football like kids do, uh, you learn a bit about it. Um, and um, so when I worked with the wonderful man who taught me so much about television, I, I did a Sunday morning sports show with Dennis Cometti. and um, I was able to hold my own because I knew a fair bit about the game. Later I became a selector at South when Mel, Mel um, Brown was the coach. But Dennis Cometti had an influence on me. Mm. Um, so did Brian Thurley, who many people may have not have known, but he was sort of the Dennis Cometti of his time, a newsreader, footy broadcaster, and there'd been other people. Steve Gordon is so wonderfully intelligent, well-informed, well-read man. And he was my wingman on radio and he knew more about the world than I ever would. Mm. And we've remained friends. So I've been lucky. I work with good people. Yeah. Good people.
1: That's the key, isn't
2: it? Um, the people
1: that inspired you, you've mentioned some of the people that you really enjoyed working with, but who Hmm. inspired you? Who were the, who were the guides and the mentors in your life?
2: I don't think years. I had any. Dave Patterson, the drover, I wrote a story once called um, um, That's the Way Things Are. Yeah. Um, I had to shoot a horse one time, an old horse, and um, it, I took it badly. I was only 18. And Dave Patterson, the drover, taught me things about self-reliance, how to approach the end of life the inevitability of some things and how you should approach it. But he did so in a way that was never a lecture. It just came up in conversation or mm. if an incident happened, he'd say, well, and his favourite saying was, he'd say, well, Bobby, that's just the way things mm. are. Yep. Um, he had, philo- At one time he... A bit of Bushman philosophy. There yeah, did. He's only a little bloke. he had squinted when he talked and had a huge hat. He used to squint when he when he talked to you and chew on a bit of straw, and push his hat back on his head. And he always rode this little silver pony. Never rode a big horse. Just little silver pony, and uh, he 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 had a marvellous influence on my life. Yep. I'll tell you a bloke who did. I know. I. There was once a messenger boy for a company and and for Dunlop Rubber and I met a bloke called Doug Gray and I was fiddling around wanting to be a writer and write stories that came into my head and I wrote this story and I needed to show it to someone and I showed it to the warehouse manager and his name was Doug Gray and Doug Gray read it and he wrote a critique and it Totally influenced the way mm. I, I wrote after that. And here's a bloke I never thought would have any interest in literature. And I don't know if anyone out there remembers Doug Ray or knows Doug Ray, but he had a powerful influence yeah. on my life by directing me in a certain way on how to put a story on paper. And you've been doing it ever since. I like doing it. I'm far more comfortable writing than I am speaking especially now I've got a bit of a speech impediment, um, but I'd rather write than speak. I'll yeah. Give me the time to choose my words carefully. I write a lot of trash that will never see the light of day. <laughs> uh, there's a um, a band in Fremantle called the Mia Mortals that have reformed. They asked me to write some lyrics for four or five songs. Yeah, right. Uh, and I've done that, and they've put them to music. I hope they have a big launch one day <laughs> when they have a live gig
1: and we'll all go and listen. That sounds good. Well, Bob, it's been a treat hearing your voice uh, again today. Uh, so whether we're hearing you or, or reading your words on, on page, it's always uh, an absolute pleasure. Yes. Can uh, I hearing men- what comes spewing out of the mind of mm. Robert Mormill.
2: Sorry, mate. Can I mention one last thing? Sure. As you get towards the end of your life, yep. you start to think about things that people have said to you that create an impression I was once at a news conference with David Attenborough Right. David Attenborough said the human beings are on the pathway, he questioned the existence he, he questioned human existence, he said we are on the pathway to destruction we are so arrogant to think that we can live in an in uh, uh, an economy based on eternal growth that just wipes out everything that stands in its way. That human beings are so arrogant that they believe they can destroy every other creature, cut down every other tree, turn everything to their benefit eternally and expect to continue to exist. He said, they won't. The way we live our lives and the way we gobble up natural resources, we are on the way, we're on a pathway to inevitable destruction. And his final words were, sometimes I reflect that human existence is futile. Bob, that's a a pretty sombre note to end on. Well, I don't know. You should put that in the bin. We don't want to end on a downer. I'll tell you a joke.
1: Oh, you're going to bring it home with the joke then, Bob? Oh, I know. We'll just leave that hanging in the air. He's not wrong, though, is he? He's not wrong.
2: Well, the second – I'll leave you the joke. The second call (laughs) I ever took on talk radio, not on the sporting radio, but on anything goes radio, was a bloke that rang and said – G'day, Bob, Uh, Gary from Willowgy. G'day, Gary, how are you? Thanks for being with us on Mormon at Midday. Bob, I've got a joke for you. I thought, oh, God. And I said, you go ahead, mate. And he said, you're about the girl with the glass navel. And I said, no, I haven't, Gary, and and the black the panel operator had his finger on the dump button. He said, The girl with the glass navel had a womb with a view. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> that was the second call I ever took on talk radio. Uh, okay.
1: That's better. We'll end on that one. You've been listening to inspiring stories here on eight eighty two six PR in this episode with the one and only Bob Mormel Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us next time as we unearth another inspiring story.
0: You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So... We doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. ba 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 Available after 10.30 a.m. for a limited time only.